Stories Behind the White Coat. This is Grayscale. I'm Ben Davis. Today, I welcome Carolyn Wakeman, third-year resident and chief resident at Swedish First Cell Family Medicine Residency. She wants me to give a quick shout-out to Quincy, her pit bull dog, who just qualified for doggy daycare. Good job, Q. And as always, certain names and facts are changed to protect the identities of our patients. So I'm going to tell a story today about a patient I met at the end of my second year in residency. She had come to our clinic to establish uh, care for her pregnancy. And typically in our in a lot of residency clinics, patients will be assigned to one particular resident who follows them throughout their pregnancy and then gets called in um, to be there for the delivery um, for the nice continuity of care. And you really get to know people over that time. Just because of her schedule and difficulty getting in, she had met with a couple of different providers and hadn't really established with one person yet. And I was going to have a couple open visits. And so we just kind of, it was a little late, later than we usually like, but she was assigned to me. Um, she, I'm going to call her Maya. Uh, she was about my age. This was her first pregnancy and she was very excited. She had been in the U.S. for a few years, had moved here from um, another country, and, um, but spoke English fluently. She spoke English fluently, but I knew that it was not her first language. And so uh, during our first I think first visit or two, I just asked if she wanted an interpreter because oftentimes I've been wrong before, assuming that people understood more than I thought. Uh, and each time she had said no, and it was clear throughout our visits as she was asking very appropriate questions about her pregnancy and her care and you know what delivery would be like that I really felt like we had a good understanding. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't think she needed an interpreter, and, and neither did she. And so I was seeing her regularly for her prenatal care. Um, at this point, she was coming in at least every two weeks. And as we got closer to her, her delivery every week. And so um, I got to know her really well. And I knew how excited she was about this baby, both she and her husband, and then the plans they had for more children after this. Um, she, was, she was really um, doing her research into her pregnancy and into her options and came with really great questions about her, uh, about her care each time. And um, we, had, we had a really good rapport and I really enjoyed working with her. And so as she was getting closer to her due date, we began having the conversation about when we would need to induce her labor. I and mean, she didn't go into labor on her own. And I have found in my experience that people are either completely on board for induction and want it done at like 37 weeks, or people never want to get induced and want to see how late they can go in their pregnancy. And um, this patient, Maya, was definitely one of the latter. And she, we, she understood the, re- the medical reasons of why I was recommending it, but she kept saying, let's just talk about it next time. Uh, I really, I want to avoid that if at all possible. And we got to the point in her pregnancy where at our hospital and our clinic, we really do recommend induction. And again, we had explained what that process looks like. And at the end of that visit, she asked me if, if she had to, which is always kind of a difficult question, um, or at least tricky, because as I told her, no, you don't have to, I can't force you to do anything that you don't want, but it is definitely my um, medical recommendation based on my training and my experience that we schedule your induction for, for the benefit of both you and your baby. And she agreed and she signed the consent form and we set the date. And I remember wondering if she was going to show up at the hospital on that date because I wasn't going to be there that night, but I had let the team know that she would be coming in. 
and I was kind of stalking our list um, through our through Epic, our um, electronic medical record, and I saw that night that she had gone in, and, and I was happy. And so her induction started and progressed and took a very long time, as is often the case. And it's a very uncomfortable experience. And I knew that she was exhausted. We basically just give you medicine to bring your body into labor when it wasn't uh, earlier than it would have on its own. And it's, it's long. You don't get much sleep. Your contractions start um, and they get increasingly stronger. But it's really hard to predict exactly how long it's going to take until you're in what we call active labor which I also think is a really disappointing term to tell women who have been contracting for 24 hours when you tell them they're not yet in active labor and their induction. And she was definitely one of the people who gave me a significant side eye when I told her that we were not quite yet to active labor. But eventually she got there and she was progressing along and eventually um, she was completely dilated, which was great, but she was exhausted. And she just asked if she could rest for a while before pushing, um, which we do sometimes. And so um, we said, of course, we let her sleep because she'd probably been in labor about 36 hours or had been in the hospital rather about 36 hours at this point. And her contractions weren't coming frequent as frequently as we would have liked. So we kind of increased the medication to help her contractions come along and let her rest and plan to start pushing in a little while. Um, and so that point came and we started pushing and she was pushing pretty well. Um, and her baby wasn't coming down as, as well as we would have liked. And so we, um, and she asked to rest again, again, because she had been just completely spent by this point. And we had talked with multiple other kind of team members in the hospital because everyone's kind of aware of the, the, the laboring patients on the floor. And when you have somebody who has been at it for a long time, everyone knows and there's that feeling when you walk onto, when you walk out of the patient room into kind of the central hub of the labor and delivery area, and everyone kind of looks at you like, why hasn't your patient delivered yet? And you feel this pressure and this need to defend whatever it is that you're doing because, um, because you know that everyone's watching. And so we had, we had talked about it with multiple other providers, and we felt comfortable with this plan of waiting until her body was really having the contractions that we thought she needed um, to have the baby. And so those contractions came at the rate that we wanted and we went back in and she pushed again for another hour or two and her baby just wasn't descending the way that we wanted. And we had kind of mentioned the word C-section. Um, or whenever we talk about inductions, we, we mention, um, or, or long labors, we, we kind of bring up C-sections, but it's usually kind of as a, something that, that we're not there yet, but it's always kind of, I think in the back of everyone's mind, um, when we're talking about, um, long labors and difficult labors. And I knew she had, she had made that clear throughout her prenatal care at every point, that that's the last thing that she wanted. And so as we get to the point where she's been pushing for hours, where she's been at this induction that I recommended that she did not want from the beginning for, you know, 36 plus hours now to then move into the conversation about needing a C-section because her baby wasn't coming down was just a huge hit for her. And I could see that. And, and her face as she um, looked at me. And, and at each point during the induction process, each new medication we tried, each new t technique that we used to try to bring her labor along, she would ask why we were doing it because it didn't feel natural and she didn't think that her baby was ready. Um, and so she had agreed to come in to do this induction because her doctor had told her it was the right thing to do. But every everything that happened after that she basically felt was going against what her body was doing naturally and what her baby was ready for. And so when we got to the point of really needing the C-section and I explained why, because she had been 
pushing for so long without much progress. She was wearing out. Her baby was beginning to wear out. Um, it was really the safest thing to do to move towards a C-section. I remember she looked me dead in the eye and said, just because I don't speak English well doesn't mean I'm stupid. And, um, and I was, I knew that she was disappointed and frustrated with the care. I had no idea that she had felt disrespected in that way. Um, whether that came just from the beginning of having the induction that she didn't want or just, or just the long process it had been either way, I had no idea that she felt that way. And I was just devastated that, that she felt like we had, um, that we didn't think that she was intelligent because English wasn't her first language. Um, and I, I apologized and, um, said, you know, this is what we need to do. And I remember people were asking me if I thought she was going to refuse the C-section and I said, no, she's, that's the whole point is that she has done what we've asked or what we've recommended at each point because we've, we're her doctors and she knows that we have more experience. She's, she's going to do this if we tell her what's what we need to do. She just, this is just exactly what she didn't want. Um, and she signed the consent and uh, we wheeled her into the operating room and uh, did a C-section. Her baby came out and he looked beautiful and, um, and it, it went well. And she was, she was really, obviously she was really happy with her baby um, but she didn't, there was something between the two of us that was different very much from kind of the rapport that we had during all of her prenatal care. Um, and so that day I went home, I came back the next day to take care, to take a look at her baby because the baby was still on our team, although she was now under the care of the providers who did the C-section and, um, and walking into the room and, and, you know, she smiled, she greeted me when I walked in and she gave me a little smile, but there was this tension, which I can only describe as the feeling of when you kind of see a friend after a big fight where you know you were wrong and you have to address it, but you don't want to. And um, that's how I felt walking into a room. And it didn't seem the time to, to kind of go into any of the explanation as to why we do inductions. I mean, she had the baby. She was fine. Baby was fine. That's what I wanted to focus on. But it definitely, there was definitely a tension in the room. And as I was examining the baby, she mentioned that she was bleeding. And you know, she, at this point, she's not my patient, like I said, but I mean, I'm, I took a look and she was bleeding much more than we would expect um, for anybody the day after a delivery. And long story short, she ended up needing to go back into the operating room. Um, they had to actually reopen her incision and find the bleeding that was coming from her uterine incision while she was in surgery, her blood stopped clotting the way, um, the way it normally does, probably because of some of her blood loss and some of her, the trauma of the delivery. She ended up needing many, many units of blood and other blood products. And after they repaired the, after they stopped the bleeding, she spent the night in the ICU, um, definitely away from her baby, away from her husband, um, and, and transferred from the ICU back to the, the regular, full, uh, the general floor the next day. I um, had to leave town the day, the night, the night that she went into the ICU. And so that was actually the last time that I saw her um, in the hospital. And uh, the last time that I've seen her come at all, she had lived fairly far away from Seattle and was taking quite a trip to come to our clinic during her pregnancy um, because of the, you know, the, the proximity to the Swedish hospital where she wanted to deliver. But we both knew that she was going to be getting her care elsewhere afterwards um, for her baby and for herself, even though generally we see people for at least one visit after they deliver with us just to kind of make sure that everything is, um, that they're healing well and recovering well and that things are going well with their new baby. 
And so um, I called her a few times after I had gotten back in the town after she had left and uh, left a few messages and didn't hear from her. I did see that she came back to the the team that had performed her surgery for one kind of post-operative check. And then um, through this through the EPIC system, I was able to see that she had taken her baby to um, a community health center closer to where they lived, which is where I had expected them to seek care. Um, but the last, I actually checked recently, and the last time I saw that she was in care, at least in our system, was in September. Um, and I had, she definitely hasn't reached out hasn't returned phone calls or, or reached out to our clinic since that time. And um, I was really upset by a number of things, I think, during her, during that process. Um, first, with, with her comment of thinking that I thought that she was stupid. I think we all take pride in treating all of our patients the same. We're trying to deliver the care the same way to all of our patients, regardless of any barriers or country of origin or language or ability to, you know, pay for care or transportation and getting to the clinic, all of these things that affect so many of our patients. And I, um, again, like I said, during our visits, I definitely thought we were understanding each other. And I don't know exactly what I would have, could have, would have done differently to, um, to prevent her from thinking that way that her providers had that view of her, but I wish I could have known what it was that made her feel that way. Um, the other thing, which is a little more complicated for me is in our initial conversation about her induction, when we were talking about kind of the, the reasons for doing it and, um, why I was recommending it when she, when she asked me, you know, do I have to? And I said, no, but this is what I recommend. That's, there are plenty of patients who don't take that to heart. You just say, okay, thank you for your opinion. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. And I, it's interesting because I generally don't want to encourage people to not follow my recommendations, but I felt like she didn't know it was an option to not follow the doctor's advice. And there's a lot of things in OB care that people do differently, different places. And there was an option Obviously, again, we can't force her to have an induction. She could have, we could have done closer monitoring and then, you know, pushed off her food for a few days and just done it at a later date. And I didn't mention that because I wanted her to get the induction. But looking back, I, I wish that I hadn't um, recommended it so strongly or I wish that I had presented her with a different option and still recommended one of the two, but at least let her know that there were... Um, other that there was another option. One of the hard things about medicine is when you feel like you're between a rock and a hard place. And a lot of the time that hard place can be L and D. How do you kind of rectify the pressures um, that, that we face sometimes uh, with, obstetrical standards, which, you know, are there for good reason, but also with patients' wishes and desires, um, even when they are, they are well-informed. I, I mean, this has come up in a lot of different ways with a lot of different patients. And I think in particularly on L&D, um, because a childbirth is such an intimate, personal uh, experience that 
um, is so impactful for so many. And generally, I'm just really honest with people about this, the quality of evidence that we do or don't have. Um, um, I remember I had a patient who was late transferred late in her pregnancy because she had been following with midwives and had really wanted an all natural unmedicated delivery. And then had gestational diabetes that uh, had put her a little higher risk for complications. And so she would transfer to 39 weeks to our care and was pretty disappointed with all of the monitoring and the ways that we wanted to do it. And I had just told her that we don't, we, we, we know some things. We don't know them for sure. We don't know for sure that this prevents those bad things from happening but those bad things are scary enough that we basically do everything we can to prevent those things from happening. Um, and you have the right to refuse certain things, but this is what we recommend. And our number one goal is always a healthy mom and a healthy babe. This is more of a statement than it is a question, but one of the hard things as a provider and especially a new provider, when somebody comes to you is when somebody has experienced a bad outcome and, um, it's something that goes against data, goes against probability, but as we know, medicine's not perfect and bad things happen in medicine. And just like this, there's a bad outcome, even though steps were taken to prevent a bad outcome, another bad outcome came out of it. And so then we have patients who kind of have a distrust of the medical system and of providers. It's difficult. <laughs> like, how do you how do you gain somebody's trust back when you're part of that bad experience, even though you weren't necessarily physically there? You're always part of that by being a physician. Would you have any recommendations, or do you have any advice to give that provider who that's going to see her next? I'm going to answer your question with a different statement that's related, but not answering your question. I'm going to get back to it. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to get back to it. No, but what, what you were saying about, about the trust, and I think particularly in primary care where we all value the continuity of our relationships, um, and I think you'll always hear the story of someone saying, I was so glad that I had known this patient for so long because when these difficult decisions came up, I was able, I knew them better than you know the specialist or whatever other provider was on board. I was able to talk them through this treatment plan and I knew their family and everything was great and we made the right decision and then we skipped off into the sunset together. And I think that same degree of, of continuity and depth of relationship um, when things don't go well also makes it more hurtful for her and has set her up for her next provider pretty... Um, and it, to, it has set it up to, for her next provider to be in a difficult situation because she's had the experience of somebody, of a provider that she knew well, that she trusted at one point, trusted well enough to agree to a decision that went against what she wanted and what she believed. And then this outcome happened. Um, so advice for her next provider in that situation, I think would be ask her about her birth experience and what she was hoping for, and where she felt like things didn't go the way she planned. It would be helpful to know if at what point she uh, either felt the most out of control or that um, where she felt the most concerned or where she felt things started to unravel in her mind, because I'm sure that there's a point for her. I'm assuming that point was just the getting the induction done because she 
everything seemed to come back to that. But I think it would also be uh, very prudent to ask her if that's truly the point to know what that would mean for her if she gets to a point. Because again, again, her next, at least for her, her next pregnancy provider is going, it's, it's going to be a different scenario again, because I don't, I think that she'll be having a repeat C-section. And so from the beginning, that process isn't going to go down the way that it did with us, but specifically because of what happened with her first pregnancy. This is one of those truly difficult experiences, right? Because you have a bad outcome, but you never really get to know why. If you could go back in time and do it all over again, would you do anything differently? I think so. I think so. And I had this conversation with my attending at the time who said, well, you know, what would that buy you? The baby gets bigger, probably less, you know, the chance of the likelihood of needing a C-section would actually go up um, when you start inductions later. And I think that may be true. I don't, but I think having her buy-in, especially if you, if you could tell her, you know, normally this is when we induce because you feel so strongly about this and because um, because I want to, you to be involved in your care. And I want, if you feel like your baby is not ready, you know, your body, you know, your baby, um, the other, this, it's not unsafe to wait longer. It's not what we recommend, but this is how other, this is done elsewhere. It's not out of the realm of, um, medical reason. We can do this. And I think her knowing that she, that her feeling involved in that process, even if she still ended up needing a C-section, even if the exact same clinical scenario played out, I think she wouldn't have felt like she was doomed from the beginning. And I think that's probably how she feels. And I think that led to her making the statement about being stupid because I think, I wonder if she thinks that I knew from the beginning that she was going to need a C-section and that I was just kind of toying with her by pretending that all of these different measures were going to help all the different things that we do for an induction, you know, the meso, the Pitocin, A-robbing her at some point, um, putting the IUPC to get her, her to make her contractions adequate, all of those things that we do that we that I explained with her each as we went along each time. I I my suspicion is that she thinks I knew this whole time that she was gonna need a C-section and that I was just doing these things to placate her. And if she felt more on board with the timing of the induction, I don't think she would feel that way because I think that feeling of disappointment and feeling, um, I mean, disillusionment, but also feeling like she, the only word I can think of is hoodwinked. God. You can use hoodwinked. <laughs> can I use hoodwinked? You can use hoodwinked. Feeling that she got hoodwinked um, by her providers. I, uh, I think that is what's going to stick with her. Um, in addition to just the medical complication of, of, of what happened. But I think those feelings, I think that feeling of just that she got tricked and that we knew all along that she was going to need this, um, I think that's what's going to linger for her. That's what I fear is going to linger for her. And that's what I wish I could address with her. Maybe more for my, maybe I want it for my sake. I don't know if it's going to help her. I think it would help me and that feels selfish. But I, I think it is very unlikely that I will 
ever, you know, have that conversation with her. So I hope that her next provider is able to dig into that and ask her how she felt like things went and what she's hoping for with this pregnancy and what we can do to make her feel part of that process. Because I don't think it's going to be me. Grayscale is produced by Ben Davis. Special thank you to Carolyn Wakeman for sharing her story with us today. Also a big thank you to Swedish First Hill Family Medicine Residency and everyone else for encouragement and support. You know who you are. If you'd like to share your story, you can contact me at thebadhumors.com. And as always, a big thank you to our patients who continue to enrich our lives through shared experiences. Now I can only think of bamboozled.